Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, those who know me know I am a really big sports fan, as is Mike Campbell, the producer of this podcast. And the team that I spend the most time watching is definitely the Boston Red Sox. So I certainly have an appreciation for baseball. So, of course, when I learned that one of the best players of all time was a Franco-American from Woonsocket, Rhode Island, I knew he had to have an episode. So I reached out to Ann Conway, the Museum of Working Culture in Woonsocket, and she told me, that if I wanted to talk about Napoleon Lajoie, I needed to speak with Dr. Gregory Robano, the author of the books In Ty Cobb's Shadow, the story of Napoleon Lajoie, baseball's first superstar, as well as the book Before the Babe, the Emperor. And I am thrilled to say that Greg is our guest this week. Dr. Robano, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Call me, call me Greg, it's fine. I'm, I'm pleased to just talk to you, Jess. Jesse. You got it, of course. All right, Craig. So before we get going too far in the interview, the very first question I have is how would you pronounce his last name, Napoleon's last name, and how would he would have pronounced it? Because I'm curious. Uh, this is a very good question. I, in the research, there were actually 12 different ways to pronounce oh, his geez. name. Oh, man. In fact, he, he said once, uh, just pick a vowel and you'll be close enough. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And... Uh, as you can imagine, when you're in in Woonsocket with a with a strong native um, French population, I've always been nervous because they want me to say La Joie, you know. Sure. But yep. some of the possibilities: La Joie, uh, okay. La, La Joie, um, La Joie, like three syllables. Okay. La, La Joie. <laughs> it, I, wow. You know, it, and the funny part is. Um, I have the answer though, okay. because in doing research um, in the Hall of Fame, I came across a letter from his niece. Now his niece uh, and her husband took in uh, Napoleon in the last four years of his life in Daytona Beach in uh, Florida, and because his wife had died and he needed to be looked after to some degree. Uh, and the Hall of Fame actually asked, how do you pronounce his name? And he said, my uncle and I always pronounced it LaJoy. Now, you can imagine there was a little silence from the French community. I would imagine, sure. Said LaJoy. <laughs> but I figured that's the latest and the last. But you may find me slipping into any other pronunciations because uh, the guy was so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I might do this. <laughs> well, I'm going to feel good then knowing that it's going to be hard for me to um, completely mispronounce it, seeing as I have so many options to go with. You can't. You can't. That works. All right. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Real quick. I just would like to get your story. Kind of, where, kind of where are you from? How do you become a baseball historian? This is such an amazing, amazing job. I always was a member of Sabre, you know, Society of American Baseball Research. And to kind of take your question to like, how in the hell did you get interested in you know, <laughs> joy? You know? sure. uh, I think that the reason is I was reading one of their books and the, the man who was the chairperson 
and I'll quote it in a second, but the chairperson of the dead ball era, which is the era that La Joie comes from. And he started out a meeting, a conference meeting, and he says, who the hell was that guy anyway? Oh, wow. It was like the very ground on which I thought I knew everything I needed to know, haha, about baseball history opened up beneath my feet. I discovered there was much more to the joy than his 3,242 hits, his 339 batting average, his almost 1,600 RBIs. There was his 1901 Triple Crown, his four consecutive batting titles, his four, slu his four slugging percentage crowns. He actually batted over 350 10 times. Um, while my mind struggled to picture a second baseman capable of inflicting that kind of damage with his bat, I grappled with another question. How come I had never really heard of him? Right. Where was the full-length biography of him or the motion picture about his life? Who was this guy, seemingly named after an early 19th century European emperor who had eluded my notice for so many years? And this is coming from the chairperson, you know? So it was like, that's a really good question. How could the ball be dropped on this guy? Excuse the pun. Uh, yeah. There'll be a lot of stupid puns from me, so don't I worry. Like about it. It. All about yeah. it. <laughs> uh, so that got me interested, you know, and I went to, um, to the Woonsocket mayor and started talking about that, you know, and she said, yeah, well, we know about him. And I said, well, there's, there are no streets named after him. There's, there's no statues after him. And then she kind of grew quiet. And I said, well, I'm, I want to write a few books about him. And I would like to focus especially on the, on the Woonsocket population. Napoleon Lejoie, you mentioned he was born in Woonsocket. What do we know kind of about his parents and his upbringing when he was, when he was a kid? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, his family came from Quebec outside of Montreal, like uh, in a small village 20, 20 miles uh, south of, of Montreal. But as was the case for many, uh, economics were not good, family was struggling. So they finally decided, uh, and especially since the mills, the mills in Rhode Island offered like two or three times the price, the, uh, the salary, so to speak, sure. you know, of those in, in, uh, in French Canada. So they came down, they stopped in Vermont, tried farming, it didn't work. So they finally then arrived in Woonsocket. Now there already had been five LaJoy's in the family, you know, caring. And one guy kind of laughs at that. Typical French Canadian family. That's small uh, for a French Canadian family. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. Just he said, except that normally they they have twelve kids and they and they give that one to the church. <laughs> absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I didn't know. I was just like, okay, he said it. So the family came down, but the here's where the things went went berserk. After like uh, La Joie, La Joie is born in Woonsocket, okay, but um, by time he's eight years old. He's, his father has died. His father died when he was eight. So now you had a family of eight struggling, trying to make ends meet with, with hardly any money. And uh, I, I looked in the town bureau records and the family uh, actually had, he had nine different listings of places that he lived. Oh, wow. Two or three years. So, you know, it was happening. The family was saying, we'll take him for a little while. We don't have a whole lot of money. Then he'll go to his uncle, then he'll go to his sister. That's how the whole thing moves. And then the love affair with the Woonsocket developed. 
which we can talk about whenever you want. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll certainly get to that for sure. So definitely a, a tough upbringing. I did yeah. see, though, maybe you could talk a, a bit about it. Um, we talked a lot about the mills and obviously right. the mill culture and the Franco-Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, he, he did it sometime in the mills, right? Yeah, he was he was in the mills. Um, he he was a, a card sweeper in the cotton mills. One story, and, and believe me, Jess, it's, it's hard. I can see even the things that he says, there are times that if you really did it historically, looked at every little thing, you'd say, I don't know, that really might not have been. I mean, that was another year. And maybe we all kind of create <laughs> histories that we don't know about or that we need to believe in. But he said that he, he once almost uh, lost his arm in, in one of them and the curling machines that came in as he was pulling out the threads. That's the only report I'd have of that. And obviously it wouldn't be coming from anybody else because you know, they're not going to report that <laughs> in the mills and factories. Yeah. But he had yeah. other jobs too. You know, by 10, he was in love with baseball. Gotcha. By, by 10, he was, by 11, he was so good that if the other team had nine, you know, they discounted him as having seven. You know, when you have him, then you only can have seven seven people on your team okay that's kind of crazy his mother was frightened to death that something was going to happen to him obviously because it was a dangerous place you know get run over easily by you know a cab in that case a horse-drawn cab and she said you know i'm not going to allow you to play so his friends and he said well okay we'll we'll do this we we will call you sandy now obviously he didn't have light complexion and sandy hair so the mother would go oh fine that Sandy is playing a lot of ball, you know, but that's not my son. So he had a little bit of chicanery in him. And that's, you gotta like that. Love of the game, you know. <laughs> that is super, yeah. It is kind of a crazy story. I had, when I saw that he, he worked in the, in the card, carding room, I actually yeah. had a, I actually got a hold of my mom. My mom worked in a mill and she told me mm -hmm. about, about mm -hmm. how that was kind of like cleaning the cotton before it got sent to the spinning yeah, yeah. to yarn. So no, right. super, super interesting. Yeah, and I think yes. every member of the family at, at, at one time or another was in the mill. They moved on to the fire department, to labor union jobs, but oh, wow. started there, you know. Gotcha. Okay, so he starts playing baseball locally. He's getting the attention right. um, of, you know, the people in town. They know he's really good. When does it start to occur to him he, he might be able to do this for a living? That's, that's a good question. I think he was kind of a... He was very aware of, of the social drama of not being in the same class as some of the other of, of some of the other ball players and those who made more money than he did. You know, so he was very class conscious. And at at one point, um, he got a job because the the teams, the town teams, they could get a ringer on their team. You could you could pay to get one player come in from another town to play for you even though he was not a resident of your town. Interesting. Okay. Now, the, the funny part is Mr. Burns, oh, is, yeah. Mr. Burns remembered that because Mr. Burns wanted Napoleon LaJoy on his baseball team as a ringer. That's awesome. <laughs> and they, and they told awesome. him, he died 50 years ago, Mr. Burns. So what happened is, you know, when, so he got on and then people started to see how really good he was. And he started to realize that he could prove to these people that this was one way of showing, you know, I can stand erect on this field, you know, bring who you want on, go ahead, I'm ready, you know. And so it was kind of that, 
ethnic, cultural, class pride that I think got sure. him going. Okay, even though he's a very humble man, I have a lot of stories about humility. You have to have that kind of belief in self and a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a chip on your shoulder, you know, to to make it. And he had it, you know, in that gotcha. way. Gotcha. Did they speak French in the house growing up? Then was that his first yeah. language? Yeah, they did. I mean, uh, because if it's it's there was a town rec town bureau, and it said that at the age of eight, he could read but not write English. So gotcha. I'm kind of assuming it was you know straight line French in the in the upbringing. Uh, sure, it wouldn't yeah. have been a problem where he was working. You know, it wasn't sure. like he had to learn it. You know, that kind of way, but he did. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Now, how, what did he look like physically? Was he physic, a physically imposing guy? He's just built super athletic, different than well, his peers. Well, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has his picture on it, but unfortunately, you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, just, I can see pictures, sure. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, when I look at his picture, he kind of looks, he looks like Robert De Niro, I think a young Robert De Niro, but much bulkier. And by bulky, I don't mean no, no blubber. He was six foot one, 185 pounds, rock strong. Yeah. So much so that he was offered jobs to be like the strong man in the circus and all these other places. And uh, his wife quickly said to him, no, you're not taking those kind of jobs. So he was a physical specimen, you know, in a lot of ways. He was also very good looking. There, there are a lot of stories about women sending him uh, photos, hoping that, you know, that he might autograph them, or can I have a picture of you? And of course, oh, wow. his wife also said, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. But there's a story I can tell you about that, because this is how humble he was, because because of his French connection, of course, you know, he was known as the emperor of the diamond, the d'Artagnan of the baseball field, or that kind of stuff. So it got really a lot, almost too much. So there was a, he, in one interview with a guy, player, excuse me, a, a journalist, he said he read part of the a paper article based on his looks. And it says, um, okay, I played with the majesty becoming my name. And he's still reading. And as you watch this big, grim, fascinating Frenchman, solemn and serious to the point of sadness, you think to yourself, there could never be a name that would befit him so well as his own, Napoleon Lejeune. He plays just like his name sounds. Every movement harmonizes with the deep stately poetry of his name. At that point, Lejeune <laughs> puts the paper down, says, if my father could read this, oh me, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on, he says, listen to this one. I'm an eye-filling d'Artagnan whose every pose is a picture. A handsome fellow, big and dark with bold features. I wear my cap cocked on the side of my head, covered in thick, dark, wavy hair. And the big Frenchman wears the uniform roll collar of the day, casually turned up to make an attractive frame for his face. And oh, that face. Long, clean-cut mouth, big, finely chiseled nose. This is all coming from what he's reading. I love with it. A on his chin, a pair of soft brown eyes that seem to look right into you, and yet are soft, tender, and gentle. So at that point, he couldn't remain serious. So he laughs and he goes, soft and tender and gentle. 
aren't I the original? Come on. <laughs> How do I keep my marriage together after my wife reads this one? So, <laughs> so yeah, he, he was considered quite the good looking fellow. You know, Ty Cobb was as ugly as a chicken, but not this guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just looking at the picture now, he doesn't seem very soft and gentle to me. He looks like somebody I would not want to make angry down in dark alley oh. for sure. Oh yeah, you don't, you don't, you didn't fool with him, you know. And some of his great movements, even like his movement from one league or one team to another, was because somebody was pushing into his face. You know, physically, that was he would never hit anybody, but physically uh, and emotionally, you don't do that to me. You know, my space, your space. And if you're trying to cheat me, you're going to suffer. I'll always give you my best shot, you know. Okay, now, I'll what couple questions for you, Jess. You ready? Oh, please, go for it. Okay. Now, if you get these wrong, <laughs> then uh, I understand. I'll, I'll <laughs> no negative consequence? Okay. <laughs> okay. These are who questions, okay? Ooh, all right. This could make it tough, sure. All right. Who had the highest average, or who still has the highest average in the history of Major League Baseball? Well, that, that one's a layup. Uh, so that would be that would be our boy. Was it four twenty six? Yeah, pulling exactly. Yeah, great because Ty Cobb hated him for many years because Ty's highest was four twelve, and and he beat him out by fourteen points. But you know, in that year that that was in nineteen oh one. And that was the year that um, Connie Mack, you might've heard of Connie Mack, you know, you do a baseball player, yeah, right? Certainly. You know about baseball. Yeah, so, pretty good uh, manager, yeah. Oh yeah. So Connie brought him in to play for his team. So his first team was not the, uh, the Cleveland team, but it was Philadelphia. Now in that one year, they, they were starting up the American League. That's why Connie wanted him. He, I got to get this superstar from the National League. So 1901 is when the American League starts. He led the league, 426, that's hitting, yeah, in runs, in doubles, in RBIs, slugging percentage, uh, total hits, even in fielding average, he led the league. So it was like a total wipe across the board. And so, of course, Connie was just ecstatic. You know, they had gotten the superstar of superstars and whenever I talk to my Boston Red Sox friends, I'd say, oh, I don't know who he is. I say, well, you know, Boston might not even be in existence if it wasn't for a nap, you know? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to get to that, kind of what he meant, not just to that franchise, but kind of to this semi-upstart American League is kind of what mm -hmm. it sounds like. And then there's, that, there's this kind of career before that short with the Phillies. Right. So how did the, that come about? Well, that, that came through a... And again, it, it depends on how you hear the whole story and such, you know. Sure. But it, it comes out that, you know, somebody made reference, uh, a, pit, a pitcher from uh, Brown University made reference to having played against this, this hayseed in, in Woonsocket. Yeah. And he said, but, you know, every time I pitch the ball, the ball is out, the line drives everywhere. This is a, this is a serious guy. So that began the, the farm, you know, the uh, scouts running about and he finally was offered a, offered a job first with, uh, with Fall River. So the Fall River Indians was the first team that he came on to. And he batted 429 for them. Okay. Not a bad start, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so in terms of being loved, they, they went crazy over him too, as you can imagine. And uh, there's a, there was a, they had a dinner for him once. And 
it got me a little bit because the, the mayor says the most important thing of what he has done is that he has become the symbol for our kids in this city that they can make it. So he was very much an Horatio Alger figure, you know, for everybody. But he also, he said, it hasn't helped their history though. He said, I, I've been told that there's a history teacher who told me when he asked the question, what was Napoleon's greatest achievement? Uh, the answer came back 14 total bases. Because uh, they didn't know Napoleon the emperor. They only knew Napoleon the player. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And he was so, he was so powerful that uh, one of the reporters said, um, not since the, not since the slaughter, slaughter done by Lizzie Borden has there, oh, been, so, has there been so much bloodshed on a Puritan soil. Oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's pretty good. That's a good cut yeah, from that yeah. reporter. So, okay. he, so he became, uh, well, and then of course, once you have that, you're going to have, you know, uh, professional teams all around you, you know, trying to get you. And that's when the Phillies popped on in, you know. Uh, gotcha. Now, yeah. I, I got another question for you. This one's okay. easy. Okay. Well, the, I thought the first one was pretty you're good. One yeah. for one. Okay. I got a feeling you're going to be three for three when this is all done. I at least got to get to 426. Yeah. You told me, you said, I, 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 I love this guy, Nap. I know everything about him. And I said, he's one of mine. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, he, okay. Now, who got more Hall of Fame votes than Cy Young? Interest speaker, from what I understand. Interest yeah. speaker. You see, <laughs> I'm loving it. You not only got the question right, but you got the bonus question. You right. got the bonus. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have bonus points. Yeah. Now, no, this one you know, who had a, a Major League Baseball team named after him. The Naps. Yes. The Naps. Um, one thing I found fascinating about that was that, because um, now we're into the Cleveland love affair. You know, we got the love affair from Fall River. Then sure. we get to Cleveland. Um, the Cleveland love affair, it was really a, so strong, but how do I put it? Um, so strong that at first, when the, when the, when the team just said, why don't you, you know, what, give us a name you want the team to be called. They've been called the Broncos. They had all kinds of other names. And they and they voted the Knapp after, after, of course, Napoleon, their player manager. Now, four years later, when the, the team thought, well, maybe it's time to move on because he's no longer the manager because he found managing. And, and, you know, he never won a pennant, you know, so sure. except in the International League of Toronto. Uh, but... So he ended up saying, well, uh, I don't know. And, and the fans said, yeah, we do know. We're still keeping the name Nap. Okay. And when later on they asked him what was the most uh, fulfilling and wonderful moment of your life, it wasn't anything to do with his baseball uh, performance. It was to do with getting that he got a horseshoe. Uh, I think, and you're nodding, maybe you got it, but there was a huge horseshoe that he walked through after celebrate 10 years with the Naps. Awesome. And it was all, it was 1,009 silver dollars. And the silver dollars, at least 80% of them were donated by the fans. And, uh, and as Lajroy said, and a dollar in that day was a lot. So sure. he, was, he was very thankful for that and, and, and very humble in response, always was. Interesting. Uh, no, that's good. No, so you, you got them all right. I can't even think of. I'm on fire so far. But, you know, I think you know those two. So well, if they're coming. I'm, I'm feeling good about myself now. I'm building some confidence. <laughs> One thing I did see, which I was not aware of at all, um, mm. 
before we kind of doing some research was that coming up through like his minor league days, he was mostly a center fielder. And so how does he end up playing second base? Well, you know, that's, that's kind of a good question because the, the migration to second was a wonderful thing for him, but he actually, uh, he was a catcher in the very early days. And you can imagine he had the bulk, you know, that Oh yeah. Big dude. Right? Yeah. He had the arm. I think it was just simply a managerial decision and since he could play so well, almost at, at, at any position, um, I do say, though, he wasn't fleet of foot. You know, you, you never see him as leading the league in stolen bases sure. you know, or those kind of things. But he was very, very quick off the ball. Um, and so and the, if you were to see him, it, you wouldn't believe it. Just if, if a ground ball was coming to him, he didn't do they do now, you know, come with the glove forward. Make sure the knees are close. Watch the ball into your glove. Stand up and throw the ball. He would basically go down to the ball and the ball would land in his glove and he would release the ball before he'd even looked at first base. So they said it was like so quick and so fast, wow. you know. And later on, they would ask him, you know, and he was a Bill Belichick in some ways. I'll kind of explain why. Okay. Uh, because he, uh, they asked him, like, "How do you explain why you're such a good fielder?" And he goes, "I got a big, I got big feet." And he wasn't going into any details. In other words, I got the ball fast because I have big feet. A nonsense answer, you know, like yeah, yeah. would give, you know. Yeah. And then absolutely. you know, what's your idea of an ideal baseball player? Come to the, come to the field and watch the game. Okay. And he didn't mean himself, but you know, don't tell me what your ideal is. I'm not giving you my ideal. Is just watch me play. If you think I'm good, fine, you know. And then, you know, what, what does it make to be to, to be a great hitter? What do you have to do? And he goes, hit the ball. <laughs> yeah, okay. And he kept on with these answers. And he would even start interviews saying, you got five minutes to finish the interview. Okay. Oh, wow. Four, four of which will be my voice talking, okay? And they said, okay. And then when it came to like, the, you know, the next step, he would just kind of say, um, I really don't want to be around you guys. I really don't. I, I'm not comfortable with all this stuff. You know, Wow. You know, that was a day and age when everybody, I mean, you would never say that about Ty Cobb, you know, more people around to ask more questions, all the superstars. Sure. He never wanted that stuff. You know, uh, he never wanted to be, um, he said, he said, okay, I'll give you information about me. What do you want to know? And the, and the, the interviewer says, tell me about your life. And he goes, I'm not telling you anything about my life. So, that, so he, he invites the question and then shuts off the answer. Yeah, sure. So, but I will tell you, uh, my chicken lays 16 eggs a day. Um, oh, geez. My horse weighs X number of kilos. Um, my, he said, my wife is in yawn. She makes me five socks every two weeks. You know, inconsequential nothing stuff. Like, right. ah, what are you going to do with that? He actually moved away from Cleveland. And he lived in a farm 20 miles away, you know, and uh, just to basically exhale to be with himself and his wife. He never had any children, you know, so he kind of settled down into that that world of, of the farm, had a, a pet dog, a couple of pet horses, you know, Holly and Molly and all these kind of things. And he said, though, but sometimes he said they, the, he didn't say paparazzi, but it's everybody followed me everywhere and I couldn't right. stand it. Yeah. He said, that the train would stop and say, there is the house of Napoleon Lajoie, okay? And he said, 
it got so bad that, you know, here's his humor, you know, that the chickens started to say, um, I'm not laying any eggs unless I get some of the money from these photos and these sports interviews. So he, he never took himself that seriously in that way. Sure. And, and he explained it. He said, if I had a son, why would I want to give him a swelled head? He said, I was an accident. He said, I was just, I was born with, I, I'm the poor sucker, not so poor, but the right. sucker who play ball. That's all, you know, don't make so much out of all this, you know? So that's why I loved him too. Like, you know, how can I keep on writing about him or talking about him with the kids? Because it's all that, that humility and that pride um, and that sense of perspective that he had, you know? But he took everything seriously. If someone gave him an award, you know, his answers would be brief, but they'd be very sincere. You could tell. It was, it was not Belichick, you know? When the <laughs> citizens were talking to him, he was a different person. They called him Nap or Poli. They had all kinds of names for him, you know, and he would always be asking about, so what's going on in socket? And when anybody visited, you know, and that was kind of fun too. He, he never lost his love for the city. And then the and then I'll let you ask a question because I, I gave you a, really, oh, this is great. a four hour answer to this. <laughs> I like it. I was doing a presentation in the Museum of Work and Culture because I wanted to test just how much has Woonsocket won to have this hero come back, you know, sure, and that's sure. it. And over the course of time, the mayor wanted, the, the superintendent of education, uh, the, the tourist chamber, um, the Little League, they all wanted to hear more, you know, and they joined this task force to help tell his life. But I'm doing a presentation at the end, this, this man comes up and he's about 80, okay? And he's got a baseball in his hand. And he said, this is a signed baseball by Napoleon Lajoie. Wow. Yeah. And I said, I, I'm thinking, oh gosh, I don't know. You know, I don't want to, I mean, because I knew the signatures and it looked like it, but there's so many forgeries everywhere. Of course. Now, you know? of course. And I knew that it was $29,000, you know, for that signature. Yeah. Now, if my wife would let me, I would buy the 27, I'd buy the $29,000 ball. Yeah. <laughs> but then I'd have to get another wife. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. But he came up, and this was the great part, just he said, well, he signed it for me when I went to visit him. And I said, when did you visit him? And he said, in Daytona. Now I said, I'm checking that off. Yeah, I know he spent time in Daytona. Sure. And he said, um, he said, I was, and this is a typical great story that he was in, the guy was getting ready, he's gonna get married, and he was in a furniture store in downtown Woodsocket, you know, speaking the French back and forth, you know. Uh, and and somebody said to him, So we're gonna go in the honeymoon. He said, I don't know where to go. And out of the blue, the guy who owns the store says, Go down and see Nap. And he said, I'm gonna see Nap. He said, Oh yeah. He said, the guy arranges it. And so for his honeymoon, he goes down to see Napoleon. <laughs> and Napoleon greets him at the door, you know, and the, and he and he shows me a picture. The guy had a picture, you That's know, unbelievable. Of Napoleon, uh 82-year-old gracious man signing this thing and invites him over for dinner the next day. Didn't ask his wife, but and so I said to the guy, I said, uh, can I use your name? And he said, no. I said, why? He said, well, my wife and I, we've changed a lot since those days. And he showed me, and again, I looked at the picture. He was a handsome guy. His wife was beautiful. And he said, I, I don't want people seeing us the way we are now. He said, you know, keep me out of this. 
said, but I'll, I'll let you use the story, you know? So there's humility and, and sincerity on all sides. And you come away saying, another reason why you got to tell this guy's story, you know? That's awesome. That's a, yeah. That's, see, I, I'm going to be a best man coming up this year, and uh, I cannot send my friend to go hang out with one of the best ball players ever. So that works out. <laughs> Sorry about that's that. Nuts. Yeah, that's well, nuts. Yeah, still alive, and you know, you seem to know a lot about him. You can, he would put, you know, a posthumous meeting. You know? <laughs> Interesting to, but he, to it's funny because he was so humble. The little league wanted to like, he was the one of the executive ministers of the little league, and they wanted to honor him. He said no. So he just, he would sit in center field watch them play and support oh, wow. them, but never wanted to be called forth, you know, that a microphone wouldn't do it. You know, that's, uh, he did wow. see Ty Cobb once before he died. Uh, Ty Cobb came to visit him um, in four years before each of them died in his Daytona Beach uh, house. And uh, I don't you wish you could have heard the conversation. Yeah, between for real. Two. You know, there's this series called Glory of Our Times where the guy took an, he took his uh, microphones and he recorded the old stars, but unfortunately he was doing it in the 60s, Lazaro and Cobb are both gone, but to have them both would have been a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Is, there any, is there any video? Of, I couldn't find video of him on the internet. Does video there exist? There is, uh, and I, I can send you something uh, if you Perfect. want. Absolutely. Uh, it's a, I think it's in 19, it might be early 50s. And for a while there, the American League was doing, um, inspirational instructional videos okay. and they would and they would have great stars of, of the teams come and for some reason they decided to have uh Lajuac come now the guy is 64 years old you know at the time sure and you wouldn't have believed how sweet a swing it was i mean it wow. even then because they would always talk then like he's got a nonchalance that makes it look like he really even doesn't care, you know, what he's doing. Um, but you'll watch it, Jess, and, you know, you can't see me. I'm trying to visualize it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's coming through, and just like a good bat speed, and then eye on the ball, and then just with a flick of the wrist. Now, this is a guy who hit massive line drives. He was noted for inflicting pain with his line, with his line drives. Um, so much so that um, there was a there was an umpire telling a story that he said he was trying to help this rookie pitcher, uh, third baseman. And he said, you know, one reason why you might not be starting is you got to move up closer. These, these guys are bunting, you know, and they're not getting to the bunts. So yeah, bunting nowadays. Uh, so that no way. It so, doesn't happen. Yeah. So the guy moved forward, and Lajoie hits a wicked line drive off the guy's shin. And so next time the umpire sees him, the guy's, the guy's on, on crutches. Oh, and, and then I started doing more research about his power. And there was a, a, a fielder named Kid Eberfield, who was, he wasn't Hall of Fame, but a very good player. And he said, I played third base. See, now, the ump didn't know that Lajra was going to be batting. So he told him, you know, he didn't know that you're going to face this behemoth, you know. Sure. But... Uh, the guy kid Eberfield did know and he when he played a step back and Lajoie hit a line drive to him and basically it lifted him off his feet and he and I, I was reading the story it was fascinating and he said I, I landed five feet beyond where I caught the ball all I felt was a real stinging and then 
He said, and I looked and thank God the ball was still in my hands. And he said, there was nobody who hit the ball that hard. And so many say, yeah, Babe Ruth might've hit the majestic home runs. Ty Cobb might've found the gaps, you know, or bunted, said nobody hit it this hard. And then I saw an article and it was a Sabre, Sabre approved article. But it was an article way back in 1910, talking about Elijah hit the ball so hard that the gut spilled out, it unwound, you know, as, as he hit it. And I said, this really can't be, but I found the article that confirmed that he did it. And the guy in the article is saying, we're not talking any run of the mill, nothing ball. We're talking a professional ball, you know, and that's, that's the way it was. You can be a little bit, even I can sometimes question things though. Because <laughs> the, the dead ball was so dead, you know, and uh, there's a great story where Joa is, he's playing against Detroit and he's, a, he's the manager of the Naps course. And he says to the umpire, by name Connolly, he said, you got to throw this piece of mass squash and tomato out of the game. Look, there's nothing left to this ball. So, so, a lot, so, the, ump, so the ump says, what do you think? We're made of money? Now just turn around and get back to the dugout. That ball stays. So Lazarus turns to him and says, you big Mick, you didn't even know how to spell the word ball when you first came <laughs> <laughs> so then comes the counter insult against the French. So the umpire says, "Well, you big frog. You know, when I first saw you, you had a you had a cardboard carrying case, and that was it." So at this point, Lasroy decides he's going to do what he wants to do. So he kicks the umpire in the shins, which is nothing in those days. The umps were abused so much it, it didn't even mean anything. Uh, but he kicks him. The umpire drops the ball. Lazarus grabs the ball and throws it out of the stadium. And then the ump says, you're out of the game. And Lazarus says, so's the ball. So, I mean, <laughs> so he had a sense of humor. You know, he, he could get his way in that kind of way. Yeah. Sounds like a but bit, a bit, a bit of a story. So, you know, a lot a of good stories. Yeah, I was going to say, it did sound like he, had, he did have a bit of a temper. He got suspended a couple times, right? For yeah. yeah. Different and interactions did, yeah. with umpires. With yeah. Yeah. He's, and one time he got in trouble, but he, he didn't even mean it. He was the manager. And the game was it was Fall River. It was, the game was over like it was ten to one with an inning or two to go. And he came up to the umpire, and they agreed that you know, okay, it's eleven one game. Uh, you can call any kind of strikes you want now and get this game over, you know. But sure. he never told the rest of the players in the team. So one big guy who was one of the hit the sluggers in the team is called out on three pitches that are way outside, and the guy drops his bat. Goes after the umpire, beats the living daylights out of him, stripping him down to his underwear. Oh, they pull people away from him. And then the the ump goes to the clubhouse and he's followed by the player. And the player um, burns his his clothing and does this demonic little dance all around him as he's burning it, you know. And all because Lazaro, and of course the umpire retired the next day. Yeah, well, because Lazaro never told the players I made this deal. It's okay. So, you know, he he could cause trouble without even knowing. Yeah, that. that's pretty dunny. <laughs> yeah. So, was there the one story where he, he got tossed from a game but refused to leave the bench, and they had to call the police or something? You scored really? Yeah, see, I don't know about that. Maybe add me on that one. I'll get that info for me. That yeah, was I think, good. sure. I think I got that from a Sabre article. I know he got in fights with even his own teammates, like. George Stovall was on his players got and you know chairs over the head, but he would just like <laughs> he's just he's just a good old guy. He he's, he just wants to play. I understand that. 
you know, so there was this sense of, you know, I'm not a prima donna, neither is he. That's okay, you know, and stuff. Now, I did read from one place that claims that in 1899, he literally hit the cover off the ball three separate occasions. That might be one of those, not really sure if I believe it situations, right? I found, I found two examples of that. Did you really? Yeah. yeah. And one was, one was confirmed, in other words, you know, by a Sabre saber accompanying story, you know. <laughs> um, then I, I know there were times he hit the ball so hard like once he hit the ball so hard, it got caught in the fence and they couldn't get it out from the fence. So he ended up an inside the park home run, which is the guy with his speed. You're not going to see much of that, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. That's the power we're talking about. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to believe that he was called the Babe Ruth of his time, but that's kind of a misnomer because, you know, he, he, he didn't hit the majestic go watch that shot, you know, sure. going far. He was, one, one reporter, a guy named Arthur Daly, used to write for the New York Times. He referred to him as having rugged, rugged grace. And the only other person he saw that he saw was like that was, uh, was DiMaggio. And oh, DiMaggio, wow. remember, had that nice, sweet swing as well, okay? Yeah. And, and was noted for gracefully in the outfield, just like Absolutely. for the infield here. Uh, and I think, I think that hurt him in the long run. Because baseball was looking for hellraisers looking for i can do it get out of my way they they love the ty cobb story the, the ty cobb yeah that's who, that's yeah. what you're describing right there, yeah. yeah and and there are other players too even shoeless joe jackson the daring do of shoeless joe all this <laughs> kind of stuff and then you had lajara graceful even on his hall of fame plaque you know the most effective and graceful second baseman um and they always would call him that you know so graceful he was the fred astaire a second baseman, you know, these kind of things. And I think what eventually happened is people misunderstood that he either didn't put great effort in it or he didn't have the real passion that you needed to drive a baseball player. But if you watch the way he prepared for games, you know, he'd be there early on. Um, he would, he'd be bleeding sometimes, just like sliding into the bases, kind of trying to practice his, sli his slide uh -huh. into second base. And would never be the last one to leave, a Tom Brady kind of thing. But sure. the last one to leave after the game was over, still running and doing his thing. So he took the game very seriously because he knew he could be out at any moment. And he said, I don't perform, I'm gone. And that's what they did in those days. You know, that's why the rookies right. were never given much much support. You're taking my job or a rookie, and that was it, you know. Yeah, now I do want to talk about kind of how he ended up with the A's because – that entire story is incredibly fast. I actually had listened to an entire podcast episode mm. of over a half hour just dealing with this situation, the lawsuit that ensued from mm. the situation. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm an attorney, so I found it super fascinating. But maybe you can just yeah. kind of explain, first of all, what kind of contracts looked like generally at the time and how yeah. this was such a momentous, huge deal that he made this transition. Yeah, I think one reason why he why he left is because he was a man of his word. He expected that that would be the same. So Colonel, I think it was Colonel Rogers, who was the, the owner of the Philadelphia National League team, you know, by union rules then, the, the most you could make was 2000 or by agreement, sure. you know, that, that, that they, the team owners put in place. Right. Was $2,400 and that was it. 
Lajoie found out that one of the players that was on the team was was getting more money than he was. The the guy the guy denied it. Rogers no no you know blah blah blah. But he knew because he basically had talked and done his research. Sure. And so already because he had lied to him, it was okay. You're in trouble. You know I'm not I I have no loyalty to you for what you're doing. Yeah. So it ended up that. Um, then Connie Mack, and it depends on who, you know, which story you hear, but supposedly he offered him like uh, two years at $24,000, you know. So the whole amount was just escalating way off what Rogers was going to offer in the long run. But Rogers was going to go high legal, you know, and say, you know, not allowed to do this. And it dragged out. And as you probably read in the podcast, I probably mentioned how he would. Uh, he he wasn't allowed to play because he was in Philadelphia because he was afraid the police were going to grab him because he had broken some injunction, you know, some legal thing, which is constantly changing. Which side, you know, the lawyers we interpreted who won and who what, who won the case, who lost it. Uh, so he would like get off the train, you know, before he came into Philly, you know, and then all of, and then the, and then the police would board the train and they'd say, "Where is he? We know he's here," you know. And all the players would just smile. And, and of course, the great cover-ups, like, what did this guy look like again? You know, <laughs> he played for our team? You know, so they were always zing- zinging the, the authorities along the way. And thus came the, the great, you know, migration. Yeah, I mean, because obviously there's there's no, <laughs> no free agency. You're not just free to up and leave when you want. Yeah, right. Kurt and now having come here, you know, yeah. So, right. so yeah. And you do wonder, you don't hear much about that, do you, Jester? You don't hear much about his role in, in defying the owners and bringing in free agency. It's very rare that when they review, you know, they'll, 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 they'll maybe have a paragraph or two. But, you know, when his obituary came, that should have been one and there wasn't much in it, you know. Obituaries were statistics, his nickname, his popularity, et cetera, but not his real impact on the game, you know, in that kind of way. And I don't know why, I'm, I'm really not sure. Uh, maybe yeah. they think, you know, there are more pointed issues going on now, you know, with, in the public media, I'm not sure. No guess yeah. on coming, you know. Yeah, no, hugely significant, absolutely. This, this, the story of La Joie and not being allowed in the state of Pennsylvania, and the, the uh, lawsuits going back and forth as one court rules in his favor and another overturns it and goes yeah. up to the state yeah. Supreme Court and ends up with him hanging out in uh, Atlantic City during yeah. when, the, when the team was yeah, playing right. in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, it sounds like the legal concerns name about the, the last election. You know, yeah, right. people. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that is pretty well. Yeah, that whole situation is kind of crazy. But it did lead to, I know something we alluded to earlier, but I think we probably should touch more on uh, the fact, the impact that he had, I mean, on the American leagues. Yeah. At the time, he was the biggest name in the sport. The fact that he's in the American League, hugely, yeah. hugely significant for the eventual success. Yeah, you're exactly right. There was an, an article by uh, Kamiski, who was the owner of the Chicago team, you know, back then. And and he said, basically, um, no one outdrew Lajwa. No, not Cobb, none of, none of the superstars. You can mention them. When we had him, things were crazy. Wow. And I think it also did this. Because he was so beloved regionally, you know, Fall River loved him, Woonsocket loved him. You can name a million little towns and hamlets that were around those cities. 
he was their idol. One writer said that Woonsocket loses its mental balance once, once a year, and that's when Napoleon comes to visit. And he said that his, he contended the factories close down, the fire engines come out, the parades come, um, they're blowing the whistles, total celebration. That's how much he was beloved. And then when he, when he came, so, and then when he barnstormed, you know, and came and visited and had his teams come, it's a long way of saying there were, there were hotbeds of really devout, rabid fans that loved him throughout all of New England. So that meant if it was time to go see him play in the major leagues, they were going to be there. That was their Napoleon, you know, and they went running off. He was playing in Boston, we're going, you know. They would they would travel long. It was they already were like pretty good traveling fans, if you can be at, at that stage. Yeah, I was gonna say, right. Um, yeah. You know, it's not quite. He carried a, a, a canvas, canvas sneakers that he first wore with uh, New Bedford every day of his life to all the, to all whenever he traveled, a reminder of his roots. So That's awesome. And, and the people knew that. So they knew that this wasn't just a guy who played for whatever team, but played for us. And in Woonsocket, one time the Toastmaster gave him a, a watch, you know, beautiful engraved watch. And he prefaced it by saying, um, let this watch mean to you that this is your home. And wherever you play, whatever city's name adores your breast, we always want to know that Woonsocket is in your heart. And then he got up and the Hall of Fame still has this. There was an ebony cane that was inscribed to him. And I had so much fun because they let me look at it, you know. That's awesome. And I and I looked at it and it was it was gorgeous and gold head on the top and was given by Woonsocket again to their their star. Um, but I remember that when he received it, because it was part of a celebration they were having in downtown Woonsocket, where they had a, a huge dinner for him. They had La Joie salad. They had all these puns and all these things. And people loved him. And he just said, I'm not so good at giving speeches. I wish I were because I could strongly express my appreciation and the kindness. I pledge I will always conduct myself in a way that you will never be disappointed in me. And when he said that, I mean, I'm just trying to make the point that there were so many ties, sure. both by heritage, you know, by Horatio Alger ties and by the moral character of the man, that there were enough hotbeds. And I think that just generated into, this is a superstar in so many ways. And thank God the American League got him, because I don't know, you know, particularly whether they had that many others on the way, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this is so one place. I mean, whether he was playing or not could be the difference of tens of thousands of people. In exactly. Yeah which, yeah, which seems absolutely crazy for one player. But. And there are all <laughs> kinds of stories that people are still having in socket about the, the guy who used to be the, the uh, director of the Museum of Work and Culture. He had stories about when Lazarus came to Woonsocket. And I could never find any proof of these, you know. But doesn't mean they didn't exist. They're, in, they're embedded in the oral history of, of the area, you know. Sure. And, uh, and he, he said he came once and... Uh, and the fans were everywhere, and they and he supposedly hit this massive drive that, that broke X number of windows in the school nearby, and he was apologetic for what he did and such. But again, it was it was people saying we want to keep those memories, even if they are kind of apocryphal. You know, I never yeah. could really confirm that. And there's there's an older population in Woonsocket that's still very rabid in baseball, and they should be. I mean, when you think about it, you got Gabby Harnett in the Hall of Fame. You got 
and you've got obviously Lajoie, you've got um, Rocco Bardelli, coach, manager in Minnesota. You've got Clem Labine, all-star reliever, you know, for the Dodgers, all coming from Moonsaka. I mean, I, I, I did not know that. No. And I was trying to think, and I asked the Hall of Fame, because the Hall of Fame actually were going to have, it, it got canceled because of the COVID. Um, we were going to have a celebration salute to, to him. Oh, wow. And, and Woonsocket baseball. And I will definitely invite you because it's going to come. But, you know. But, I would uh, love to be there. I'm sure Mike would love to be there, too. Oh, yeah. Baseball, baseball fan. No doubt. I'll, I'll send you the news when it comes. I mean, we were right there. It was going to be held in September. You know, the bus company helped us. Uh, we wanted to bring the little leaguers there, you know, so they could see all the yeah. information about them and such. And uh, it broke down. But we're back in, I won't claim negotiations. They said yes. But as you can imagine, they got a makeup agenda of trying to all the things they missed. Yeah. They're going to do it. But wouldn't that be great? And then that would be uh, amazing. Then the Red Sox, Gordon Eads, remember the historian of the of the Red Sox? He was he, great. Uh, Absolutely. Great baseball writer, too. Yeah. Oh, I love him. He, uh, but I, got, I was doing a brief presentation. He came over and he said, this is the kind of story that we should be promoting. The kids. The, the love of the of the game as it's not held anymore. And so we had Napoleon Lazaro night or day at Fenway. That's I would have invited you to, but I didn't know you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'll come, to, I'll come to the next one. Yeah, good. And it was so cute, Jess, because, you know, the, the mayor got us all T-shirts, you know, and, and they, you know, we got a bus of 100 people to go down to Fenway, which is pretty good. Uh, yeah, for sure. In Little League is because it was during a school day. You know, this kind of stuff, you know, but so it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing love thing. We got a statue maybe coming. Um, again, I, I have it in front of me. It's a, it's, a, it's like eight, maybe like 10 feet. It's going to be eventually seven feet tall. No, oh, six, wow. it's going to be six, one, his same height. Oh, we go life size. There you go. Uh, but I got the, the, uh, what they call it, prototype. It's a better word than that of it. And so there's been discussion about, can we get some fundraising to put this up? Because we had the Little League field named after him, yeah. uh, which was nice to get it done. The Little Leaguers, um, at least they were a couple of years ago, wearing N on their hats for naps, you know, in the, in the Woonsocket thing. And the idea was, wouldn't the statue bring it all together? So we got to find some way to, it's not cheap, you know, because it's going to be, oh, of you know, course. Uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, but, but again, to have the kids come and see that figure and then to have, you know, educational programming all around it. Because uh, we educated up to 2,500 uh, Woonsocket fifth graders before the, the COVID hit. So there were, you know, five years of kids going through these programs at the museum. And so when I, when I was walking, they would, they would call me nap. And I kind <laughs> of, they also couldn't figure out how I could still be alive because I was pretending to be nap. <laughs> you said you were born in 1875. Uh, you must be really old. Pretty old, yeah. There's a very famous Rhode Island sculptor who did the statue um, of Ted Williams. That's in the remember that beautiful wooden carved statue of Ted Williams, and the guy's name is Alain Lamontagne, and he's a wonderful craftsman. He was good French name too. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. And I said to him, you know, you've done him. You've done Babe Ruth. Everybody loves the stuff you do. Can't you do this guy? And he thought it over. And then for reasons I won't go public with, decided no. 
Uh, but if, but if he had said yes, Hall of Fame was all in, you know. So we would have had Napoleon's statue as you walked into the Hall of Fame. Oh wow! In the world about baseball and Napoleon. Wow. So I kind of live saying, yeah, for every success, there's a, a failure, you know. But we can do. It's, uh, yeah, I will say, which is really neat, the dedication of that little league field. Um, that's on YouTube, so we can. Oh yeah, that's right. Don't I look? Don't I look just like Lajoie, just like Robert De Niro on my uniform? I can see where I, the students were confused. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. well, well, where did you get? First of all, you got you got the cool outfit. You got yeah. the jersey. You got the mitts. You got right. the bats. Yeah. You all, yeah. How'd you put all the getup together? As my wife, who's just smiling, probably in the other room, <laughs> because you're a fanatic who over forty years has been collecting anything that seems really interesting. I would start collecting the bats and the gloves. Okay. I get frustrated because you'll see that there has never been found a Napoleon Lajoie inscribed glove. Doesn't oh, exist. Wow. Okay. Even though in the ads of the sports companies, Spalding and stuff, you'll see it, you know, but it's never been found. And once oh, wow. I came across a, a bat, this is interesting. It was in a cotton, a cotton um, mill in Woonsocket and the guy was auctioning it off. Well, I did pretty good money, which... I wasn't going to be able to afford it, but I was asking about it. And it had to do with, they went into the mill and the mill was being destroyed, but they went into the office and there was a Napoleon Lajoie bat, you know, oh, it, was wow. being, it was hung up right behind the desk. And he said, what's, what's that all about? And he said, the family says that that bat was presented to him, the owner of the mill, uh, in thanks for things he had done by, by Napoleon himself. You know, that's and awesome. So, but I mean, I don't think I don't know if there is a game used bat, you know, because even that bat I think was probably a store bought bat. Sure. Still incredibly rare. And I have these decal bat, decal bats that are beautiful, Jess. You would love to see them where they have the images on them. And there were only like four players who started. Uh, and again, it was it was Cobb, Cy Young, Lajoie, and a fourth person that had their images. In, uh, in decal on the bat and and the, and awesome. the decals are beautiful and so they're the bats so you can find this stuff i have his pipe um oh really yeah <laughs> and whenever i think and as i'm getting older and looking more and more like the 84 year old in the picture that that guy gave me it's you know i'll pretend you know and the, and it's funny because uh i got it from the niece okay who where he stayed and I'm, I don't know about you. I would say I would never give this stuff away. I mean, For family. Because sure. yeah. he, he never had any kids, right? No. He, okay. His nephew once was quoted as saying that his uncle called him over and said, come over to the house. I got a lot of stuff here. And he said, trophies, awards, bats, gloves, all his. And he said, but I was moving. I didn't have any room for any of them. <laughs> so they threw it out. Oh, You've got to be kidding. But the, um, the pipe was funny because the woman wrote this nice article. She said, if if anybody could ever be there to hear all the stories that that that, that kind of gathered in the smoke as this pipe came on to being. And he had a stream of people that were visiting all the time because he loved staying in touch with all his old friends. Sure. You know? And so they would come and since he was so easy to get along with, there were no fights. It was going to be a nice, simple time and fun time. And uh, so I have it and pretend that, you know, then I put on the, I put on the uh, total look, put on the Cleveland 
uh, uniform, which is not the real thing. So, you know, God, if it was. Uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, with the kids, when I'm doing these presentations, I can't bring out the pipe. That's not too good. No, that's um, probably you know, not a good idea. I do tell them the story that, uh, you know, the old baseball cards, uh, sure. you get the players, and but they were put inside tobacco, you know, and and Ty, uh, Cy Young says, he said, when Lajoie got his card on, he said, the story was that there were thousands and thousands of kids all across the country that were sick because they all decided to chew the tobacco and they got the card, you know, the the card. hoping they get the, get the card. So, <laughs> but that goes to your point. I and mean, we're talking about a national fame, you know, not sure. just one that is a local guy. And uh, I, I don't know what, why he's, why did he go downhill? Well, I think not by downhill. Why is he not up there with the others? I, th- I think it's because of the, the dynamism of Ty Cobb. I mean, let's face it, you know, Ty Cobb, what, he won six, he went about 367 for an, uh, his average, won sure. six consecutive batting titles and had the American public in his mind. And they were fascinated. Everything he did, some of which was extremely bigoted and by, by no means worthy of emulation. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas Lajoie, because I had to remember when I, you're doing these presentations, you're saying, keep on looking because you don't want to find something where later on someone's going to say, and this is the guy that you you gave all those presentations about. You know, So right. I all do like a moral check on him. <laughs> but I think because of him, and then came, and then came Babe Ruth. Right. Put that together with, he's a graceful player. And not realizing that what's the poetry of baseball? It's that beautiful action of the field and the swing that is graceful, not in a, you know, an aesthetic way like Fred, uh, like I said, you know, uh, Fred Astaire, but in a real way of the beauty of baseball, you know? Now, I'd love to see Willie Mays. I'd love to see him run, see those, you see Jackie Robinson. That wasn't what Lajoie was, you know, but the purity of what he did, you know? And I'm gonna get you that quote, I'll, I'll get you that video. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen some of those old, um, they, they had that old TV show, the Home Run Derby. Yeah, yeah. So you can watch, like, you know, Willie Mays against Hank Aaron head-to-head in this Home Run Derby TV show, which is Oh, amazing. yeah, I know. But, yeah, no, that's amazing. Now, I did want to ask, I have to ask before we go, about yeah. the 1910 batting race. Yeah. It seems just about the craziest batting <laughs> contest yeah. that, I've never heard of in my life. He was bitter to the end about this because you know, um, oh, yeah. his, and and people didn't didn't know that because uh, it was only when later on afterwards that his nephew, like there was a, guy, a man named Lionel Lajoie, lived in Woonsocket, and so okay. he had some stories about his uncle reacting to things, and he said he was really he thought he got cheated out of the whole thing. I suppose for your audience' sake, you know, it was the automobile race as you said of 1910. And because all the other teams are out of it, it became, it became, you know, the, the, the Cleveland was out of it. Detroit was out of it. it. I don't even know who was in first place at that point, but 10, 15 game lead. Sure. So all, everything fascinated on, on this race because the Chalmers Automobile Company um, was going to give one of their cars to the winner. And you hear conflicting reports whether they gave only one to the major leagues or whether they gave one for the American League and for the National League. You know, sure. but in any way, uh, as as one researcher said, 
America's fascination with the with the automobile was just starting to really grow. And for even a, I mean, nowadays, you know, a player wouldn't even say, "I'm like, it's only a car. I'm, I don't care whether it's a Mercedes or whatever. I don't need it." Uh, but this was so there was a bitter battle, and it ended up being Cobb won, and he and he won by less than a half a point by most people, like somewhere in the 383, 384 zone. He stopped playing the last two games because he was convinced that he that he had a big enough lead. Because back then, official scores, and it varied according to what team, according to what syndicate had the information, you know, and the sure. American League would finally come out with it all. So he quit. Now, when you think of how Ted Williams went to bat, risking his 400 average right the 406 absolutely yeah yep. so on that and and you know and some say Cobb just because he was seen even like partying and such you know oh, those some but he some he would say it was his eye problems the thing that became interesting was that um and and you know this is that in the last game Lajoie played a double header against the St. Louis Browns he got eight hits in the game you know a single a triple and six bunt singles Everybody went crazy saying, "How you know? I smell something rotten. How can how can there be six bunt hits?" Yeah, <laughs> and the league investigated it, and they they ended up suspending the manager, not the third baseman who played back. Some people said, "Of course they're going to play back. Look at the line drives that we were talking about that go down to the hot corner when Lazarus at bat. Everyone was instructed step back at least one, maybe two. Um, so, and Lajra himself said there was an opportunity there, so why not take it? You know, it's sure, a hit, to hit. You know, so he ended up with those um, coming very, very close, uh, within a half a point. And at times they thought he won, and because Ty Cobb was so hated by even his own teammates, his teammates sent a congratulatory telegraph <laughs> to Napoleon saying thanks, thanks for beating him. You know that kind of stuff, and there was no doubt. That is, you know, popular figures, Napoleon. Ty was too. He had his own oh, you know, sure. welcoming, welcoming group. But later on, Sporting News did a complete report on it. And they found out the winner should have been Napoleon, that he should have won uh, because I think Ty Cobb had gotten credit twice for two hits. Yeah. And, but, you know, there it is. And there's the good old fashioned moguls up on top. Well, we don't want to change baseball history. So, you know, so even though there should be an asterisk next to that season, and we know they didn't want to stop because he was on the way for his sixth consecutive, you know, this was not a six. Oh, sure. Right. So they wanted to keep him in the limelight and all that kind of stuff. So the automobile, Tom was ended up giving automobiles to both of them at the end, you know, which is kind of nice. But again, it it didn't satisfy Langeois. He was, to the day he died, really annoyed about that. I don't blame him. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, so I did. First of all, I, I looked up that automobile. It, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty cool. I, I guess oh, like the, the the Rockefellers had one. Like, oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Vanderbilt's had one. So very cool. Notice when you see them in pictures, you'll see both Lajoie and Cobb in the in the in the in the car. Before it was because the company wanted pictures of them enjoying the car, even before they gave it to anybody. They'd always sit in the back seat. Because they they didn't want to uh, jinx it and go behind the wheel. They thought that would make the, that'd be a jinx victory. You know, they might end up, you know, 
bad luck to do that. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, there are all kinds of stories within stories with these guys, you know. That's awesome. Now, because one thing, I think I were at one of the places that originally, because you see, he was kind of, again, he, he was not happy with uh, with how that ended in that decision. Um, so originally, he like, did not want the car, but his wife was like, we are taking the car kind of situation. I think so. I think uh, it was one of those things where at best he took it, he took it reluctantly under some pressures from family. And they really, I, I didn't always find out which family member was pushing it, you know. Um, and on the other hand, he was a very frugal guy. So I think, right. you know, he would always say, I'm out for the stuff, the money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't lie, you know. Sure. Um, so I think he probably said, well, I'm not an idiot either. You know, I mean, there it is. Well, did he smile when he saw it? No, he probably gritted his teeth, but it was at least some form of satisfaction for him, I, I think. I don't know. Yeah. No, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I could go on and on about his batting prowess, you know. Sure. I mean, first guy to be, not the first guy, it was one of only four players, maybe the five now with uh, Hamilton and some others, to be walked with the bases loaded. <laughs> intentionally walked right and he was intentionally walked with like three of the next four hitters that followed him would eventually become home american home run league <laughs> that's awesome now he his greatest home runs are only at 14 so right. we're not talking about 71 for his whole career you know it's not like uh anybody in big time now but it said he was so hard to pitch to that a lot of funny stories have come up like he was noted, and in fact, supposedly that pitcher that um, that we that gave him that recommended him, uh, New Bedford team. Sure. Supposedly he he said he he hit a one-handed home run off me, and Lazaro. Now Lazaro didn't like the guy. He said we looked at each other, and he didn't like the clothes I wore, and I didn't really like the clothes he wore. So there was a little class warfare going on between the Brown University student and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know. But from that point on, it was always about he could hit anything, anywhere. So he would come to the, he'd come to this, to bat. And the first thing he would do, he had like maybe two or three bats in his hand. He'd push one, he'd take two out and hold his one bat, you know, and then walk in. But then he would draw a line, you know, right in the front of the batter's box. And it was, it was his way of saying, you know, now you're pitching to me. You know, that's the oh, thing all about, you know? Wow. And they said that at times people would try to actually bean him, but he only got beaned once in his whole oh, life. Wow. And, and again, it was attributed to he had amazing reflexes, you know? So he even said that this brown pitcher tried to bean me and but I stepped back and hit a home run. So he wouldn't crouch, you know, and, and, and take position. He would walk up. And according to some sportscasters, they all kind of give different views. But once he'd walk up, he wouldn't crouch. He'd have the bat by his side. When the pitcher went into his windup, he would then bring the bat up fast and do the swing and still have that wonderful, sweet swing. Um, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> how intimidating uh, would that be? If you're oh on the so there's one time where a guy, a guy said, I was trying not to pitch to him. He said, so I threw two pitches outside and one time he hits it one-handed for a double and another time of course I think then just you could step on the plate then oh, okay you know and of course the the plate was uh was square until like 1900 
you know. So I don't know whether that made it easier or harder to step on, but it was there to be stepped on. So he could reach across more. So he did that. And it seems like the pitcher then said, I don't know, I'm going to try this. And he threw it at, at, his, at his ass and, and, and hit him in the butt. And, uh, and, the, and then he yells out, even Lazarus can't hit a ball from his. <laughs> you know? I like so you know, strong. they had nice camaraderie, you know, they, they kind of, it was fun times. And, but you know, the old, we are rough and rough and ready. They were, they played real hard spikes, you know, and as you sure. said, he, he could be tough. You know, he could be, nobody wanted to be known as someone who didn't play the game hard sure. or didn't play it with a little intimidation, you know, um, no. But they always would say, even the umps would say, always treated us fairly. Yeah, we had a few battles. He spit on me. But the umps would do it. I mean, when uh, Eddie Collins was batting, he got in and the ump spits in his face. And Eddie Collins says, why did you do that? And the ump says, I hate college kids. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so the umps were characters yeah. themselves. You know, the now, Nap- in Napoleon kind of ended his major league career backing up in Collins, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, right. He was part of that team that unfortunately really didn't do much, and he, he had one of his worst games with them. He made five errors in one game. Oh, uh, that's, yes. that's a bad and game, it, yeah. And it's funny, because they said that that's where he kind of like, he put himself at the end of the bench, and they said uh, Connie Mack didn't have, the, didn't have the nerve to say anything to him, but it was like, that's where you belong. You know, you should be a stranger. Yeah, right. And he was. Yeah. You know, um, sure. And then he played in Toronto. You know, he not played. Well, he did. He did play a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. But you know, he finished up in in Toronto, um, which is kind of amazing. Won his first pennant, as you know, right there. Was um, the Maple Leafs, right? Was it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is right. Awesome. You're right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm surprised he didn't play for the Toronto <laughs> hockey team too. He had right. the build. He would have been a good defenseman. You know? Big dude. Yeah. Um, no, that is awesome. I do want to get some quotes in here because I. Before we go, though, for sure, because yeah. um, I think it's really interesting. I mean, we got a Cy Young quote talking about LeJoie was one of the most rugged players I ever faced. He'd take your leg off with a line drive, turn the third yeah. baseman around like a swinging door. And yeah, yeah. The hand of the left fielder. So, oh, yeah. Very fun quote. Christy Matthewson said that no greater, no one greater has ever played the game. Babe Ruth called him the greatest hitter of them all. His yeah. rival, Ted Ty Cobb, we talked about a bunch, said, oh, you know, I'll save my praise for only the best. So you can take right. your Ruth, your hot dogs, and your homers, but give me yeah. Napoleon Lejoie. I mean, when you no, get those here, are, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, as, as you know, I kind of, I wanted to put those in the front of the book because that was kind of like, you really don't want to see like a hometowner, you know, even though I'm not born from Woonsocket. But you need to know that what the peers thought, you know, when they've been relieved of having to say the, the standard answer, you know, sure. I mean, what will people say about A-Rod now versus what they say when he played or whatever, you know? Right, right. No, of course. Um, but the breadth of all that, you know, that that so many people could respect him in that kind of way. And and I don't think he had, you know, he had some enemies. Now, I mean, there were some players on some teams that he didn't get along with his own team. And it was hard being a manager because, you know, he couldn't take losing and some of them didn't get the whole the whole game. And sure. other times, you know, he, he got in trouble with the catch because he wouldn't get the catch a day off to uh, to get married. So they they got they got into a battle, you know. So I mean, the game is the game, as they kind of say, you know. 
So, no, no, absolutely. Are, yeah, that's important to hear those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, not bad when you're getting giant praise from Cy Young, Christy Matthewson, Babe Ruth, and Cy Cow. Yeah. That's a pretty good group. But, and I did want to maybe even you end. You know, the hardest thing with that was that many people thought, they thought that it was the day of science in baseball. So okay. that, you know, Ty Cobb was noted for being a scientific hitter, kind of like consider like Ted Williams, you know, where right, 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 right. every part was broken down to the science. He wasn't that way at all. You know, he just basically said, I see the ball, I hit it. I don't worry about watching the pitchers when they're warming up or what they have or what they bring. He said, you don't, you know, once you've eaten food, your mouth doesn't have to worry about what to do. You know, it just chews. And so he became known as a natural hitter. And that was a little bit of a, you know, later on that became a, a great thing. But during his time, it was a mixed bag because everything is about science and progress and applying science. You know, there are people who thought we were going to win World War I because baseball was bringing its science through the war. You know, like, so it was kind of really bizarre stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, that is, I mean, because I did see our scouting report. Talked yeah, about yeah. how he was like a ter terrific bunter, but he would swing at absolutely anything. Yeah, no, he was. Yeah, yeah say it was very rare for him to uh, to swing on the first pitch. That normally he would, he could take two strikes. He was kind of like uh, Casey at the bat, you know, like the, the two strikes. But instead of all the furor and calming the audience down and then striking out, he would belt that pitch, unerring eye, you know, in that kind of way, and knew where he what he was doing. So. Uh, yeah. It was, the way it was described it reminded me, I mean, the players I got to see of almost like a Vladimir Guerrero, where yeah. anybody else in the world, you're saying to yourself, why are you possibly swinging at something chest high? Or why are you possibly swinging at something that's yeah. almost yeah, at yeah. your feet? But then yeah. he, he would, you know, it would be a rope. Exactly. You know, yeah. you're going to yeah. criticize success, you know. Right. So. He, he liked, Lajewa uh, would talk about, he loves Stan Musial. He, he would say Stan plays the game the way it's supposed to play. And, you know, Musial was a lefty as opposed to Lajoie and all that kind of stuff as far as hitting. Uh, but he liked his style. He liked his swing. He liked his demeanor. He liked his sportsmanship. You know, he wanted the complete package, you know, and, and that was it. So as volatile as he, as, as, you know, he could be, most of the time he was a, really a paragon of, of control. With the umpires, everybody got out of control with them at times. That was, that was, <laughs> sure. that was expected, you know. It sounds pretty wild, that player-umpire yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And God knows what, what really happens when the clubhouse doors <laughs> close now, you know, and what's said to whom and what injuries occur. You know. The thing I would kind of like to somehow figure out is uh, I'd like the audience to just kind of know that what we're doing now, sure. we as this um, unearthing our hero, Napoleon Lajwa, task force. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's got, like we said, it's uh, got Little League president. We have the, uh, the educational superintendent of, we have the Museum of Working Culture. We have, uh, Paul Sox used to be on it, obviously not now. All right. Uh, and we have city, city councilmen. We have the mayor and such. Um, so the, the idea is that we, we want to keep, and it's, it's been hurt by the pandemic because the momentum just kind of came to a stop, you know. Sure. But the first thing was to educate kids at the, especially younger levels and provide them with books, but also do an intergenerational thing, you know, where the other book, which is the, you know, more for the adults, uh, a parent can read that or an adult can and share stories 
and go back and forth, you know, between the simplistic simplicity of the, of the children's book and that, and then continue, you know, find some money to uh, go to the Coop, go to Cooperstown, because even though they're inviting us, you know, they're not paying. Yeah, you, know, you got to get there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we got to get on the bus. We got to we got to go one, you know, one or two nights at the hotel and that kind of stuff. And then the statue, you know, I would, right. I would, I would be resting easy if I could say those three things are in place. So anyone who kind of says, I'd like to help you or tell me more about it, or I know this possibility of how you might do this, because I just don't want to go and go fund me. I might, you know, eventually. Sure. Um, you never know what people will support. These are very worthwhile, but uh, I'm not a fundraiser, you know, I'm basically right. just keep on reading baseball books, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no mansion in the background that- No, I'm not missing out. Sorry about that, you know. <laughs> but yeah. that would be, that'd be good. And, and they could either reach me at my email, which is uh, G-R-U-J-A-K-E at Verizon.net, Brujake at Verizon.net, or they can do the Facebook Gregory Urbano author you know, and then get on there and such. And, and they can buy the books, you know, um, on Amazon and, and, and River Press, so. Um, well, I appreciate you coming on. This has been way, way fun, Greg. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, God bless. You got okay. it, you have a good evening. Take care, bye-bye. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.